1: Uh, okay, so we are sitting here with our uh, not-so-new friend, Maggie Karastechi. Um, but it's just me and Tay here in the studio. Bri, you're at home.
0: Hey, it's got the your, virtual world.
1: Yeah, you got your home studio set up. You're waiting on a COVID result, and uh, yeah. we won't get into that now. We'll talk about that on a, on a Feel Good Friday episode, but... Womp um, womp. But, womp. but <laughs> with the magic of the internet, we are all here together in some form or fashion. And uh Maggie, we we actually had the opportunity to meet over uh over at Clubhouse, the wonderful app that we've spoken about on the podcast before. Um and you you really uh you shared such a such a heartfelt story that evening that we thought it would be doing ourselves and our listeners a disservice to not have you on the show. And so I'm so glad that we've been able to pull this all together to have you here. Uh, to share with us your experience in living as a caregiver and an advocate for those who are caregivers. Um, But before we get into that, why don't you just uh, introduce yourself and give us a little bit of history into your background, because I'm quite fascinated to hear about your work in economics and policy in healthcare and the research that you used to do in the ICU.
2: Perfect. So, thank you so much. I'm uh, I'm very excited to be here. I, it was great to meet you guys virtually on Clubhouse. Even better to see your faces here today. Um, so, I I have worked in healthcare for my entire career, so 20 plus years, in uh, a combination of uh, health policy development, health economics, uh, patient reported outcomes, and research in the ICU. And I. I want to talk about that for a minute because it's been so influential in my life. Um, during my time in the ICU, I, um, I got to know a, a family where a young man had been burned badly. Uh, and I was part of his care team there and part of the research team. And after that incident, it stayed with me for so long. He, he um, really sadly he died. And I had formed a really strong relationship with his family. And the reason I I bring it up and I talk about it now is that years later, when I was working at the Canadian Institute for Health Information and I was doing some media work around um, trauma and burns, I told his story and I told the story of how it had impacted me. And I'll never forget it. The uh, interviewer asked me to stay on the line afterwards. And he said to me, never be afraid to tell stories like that all the numbers in the world that you told us, no one's going to remember Mm. but they will remember that story. And it just has stuck with me through my career, the importance of people and the importance of their stories and how we, you know, how we, we like to hide behind numbers because they're easier, but how important it is to dig into those stories.
3: Mm. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a testament to the, uh, to the adage of, uh, uh, you know, one person dead is a tragedy. A million people dead is is a statistic. Mm. And 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 sadly, it is it's very true. Storytelling is storytelling of a person's experiences. Is uh, is the thing that allows us, I think, to 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 understand and empathize, and then uh, move forward. The ability to create things that. That can be helpful for the many, like mm. the story of the one or the few is the thing that allows us to do things for, for the many. And that's, I think, why, I mean, that's obviously something that we've been very, um, you know, very tuned into. And that's um, not, yeah. not tuned into. We kind of just fell ass backwards into it doing this podcast, but, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, started telling stories and or, or, you know, having conversations that elicited stories. And uh, and the influence that that has had. So that's that's played a, a really big role in what we've been up to. I,
1: I'm I'm dying to know what the uh, yeah, you, I was gonna. <laughs> you just you just telling yeah. us the story of like how you were you were you were you were doing your work within the ICU and and and, you know, got to see and 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 then and then go on and tell the story of of this man who who uh, unfortunately died to his injuries uh, uh, through through his burn injuries, but what, what is, what was the work that you were doing? Like, what, what is a researcher? What does that look like? Like what's a researcher doing in the ICU? Like what, what kind of work does that, does that even mean?
2: So I'll, I'll give you the, uh, the thumbnail version of it. So what we were doing was um, I had an idea that we were actually in the, in the burn unit, we were giving people fluid, at a rate that was actually harming their lungs. So when someone has a burn, uh, they need to be given a lot of fluid to deal with the burn. But my observation was that um, by doing that, we ultimately ended up giving them something actually that's very similar to COVID. So we ended up giving them adult respiratory distress syndrome. So my work was around looking at people who came in with burns that were greater than 30% of their body um, and looking at their fluid uh, resuscitation and what we could do to do better, so it, um, you know it, it's a it's a really interesting thing because people think of the i c u as you know a doctor and a nurse. there are thousands mm. of people and you know that are interacting um, It makes me think of you know when I see the statistics in Ontario right now about how many people are in the i c u Reach one of those people. There are there's an army of folks, mm. including researchers,
1: interesting who
2: are who are trying to make them make their journey better, but also help yeah. many in the future.
1: So you you have this background in um in the healthcare sphere in the in the world of health. Um, but your your you know your your life story. um, and again one of the big reasons why we're here to talk to you today is is for the the aspect of caregiving. Um and you have a pretty like personal uh connection to to that role. Um where does that begin? And and how do you how do you become um how do you become a caregiver?
2: So can I just say, you know, my 20 plus years in healthcare um did nothing to prepare me for the realities of the healthcare system, like being a caregiver has done. Mm-hmm. So what I have learned in the years of providing care, um, not just is far more, but goes far deeper than anything I've learned in my career. So if you'll bear with me, I'll, I'll kind of take you back to where it started. So um, many years ago, I, um, I, I was a young person. My father got ill unexpectedly. Um, he, I was thrown into the role of being a young caregiver when he got sick. We brought him to the hospital. We thought he had a stroke. And it turned out that um, what he had was kidney cancer that had spread to his brain. Um, I'm going to tell you this part of the story. And it, it still hurts me to tell it, even though it was decades, decades ago. When the surgeon found out what it was, uh, his secretary called me. Yes, his secretary, not the doctor. And she told me on the phone that my dad was going to die, that there was nothing that could be done for him. And that I had to come and get him right then because they needed the bed for someone who would benefit from surgery. Hmm. I had been raised by my parents to believe that my voice was important and that I had agency. But in this experience as his caregiver, so I looked after him for the year before he died when he was 49. Um, In that time, I was his full-time caregiver, but I was overlooked. I was ignored. I was ridiculed. I was looked down on. I was pushed aside literally and figuratively. Yet I was the one who knew him and his needs better than any healthcare provider we encountered. So, I could have helped them to provide good care for him. I persisted and I vowed at that time that I would never allow my voice to be silenced again. Hmm. So, fast forward to now, where I'm currently the caregiver for my mom who lives with me and my sister. And here's the epiphany for me. While we use new terms that are fancy and we speak about patient and caregiver engagement, We have patient engagement offices prominently in hospitals. But in fact, really very little has changed since my experience with my dad. So our family experience now still speaks of a system that's badly broken, where the system itself is what's at the center of planning, not the patient, and certainly not the caregiver. So, you know, when I think about the journey that we've been on, My sister was treated with surgery, chemo and radiation for breast cancer quite a few years ago. And then when we thought that that was behind us, she developed some odd new symptoms. Those symptoms led to an eventual diagnosis of a very rare kind of cancer that required surgery that was 20 plus hours long, several weeks in the ICU, and then in hospital, and then a series of complications. One of the things as her caregiver um, that, that I still think about, and to be quite honest, I still feel guilty about, her diagnosis took over a year to happen. And it was because she was bounced from provider to provider. And but here's the thing. None of those providers were connecting the dots. Various of them had pieces of the puzzle. No one had the whole story except for me. I was her caregiver, and I was the only one who knew the whole story. Yet, I wasn't seen as part of her care team. So I carry the guilt still that I wasn't able to pull those clues together sooner. Mm. I get emotional when, I'm, when I talk about this, so I apologize.
0: No, of course. Um, Don't apologize.
2: But, you know, I can't help but ask myself why it is in a sophisticated health system like ours um, we can't exchange information, and we can't gather information in a cohesive way. So, why is it that I, as her caregiver, bear the responsibility of collating her history, and then telling a cohesive story, and then bearing the responsibility of relaying that information on each clinical encounter? So, I was constant. I've constantly been worried that if I miss something important, or if I misinterpret something. Um, her care is going to be altered negatively, hmm. but in this kind of a fragmented system, were I not to do it, who would right uh, what like just just to kind of
1: rewind a little bit on something that you had said earlier when you were when you were in the role as a young caregiver for your father and you you felt like you were being um, you know, spoken down to or not taken seriously. What? Why do you think that is? Do you think that was? Do you think that that was because of your your age? Like people just weren't taking you seriously, or or do you think it was something much greater? You know, a, a much greater problem within the system of of healthcare at that time.
2: So, I, I it's a it's a great question because I've reflected on a lot, and I work with a lot of young caregivers now. Also, sorry, sorry. Can I
1: ask you, how old were you? How old were you then?
2: So I was in my late teens.
1: Okay, okay. Mm -hmm.
2: So, but I, as a, as a young person, um, a, I, I did not have the knowledge that you know the surgeons and the residents and the nurses had. Um, I did not have a title. I, you know, I did not have a formal role. Hmm. Um. And as a caregiver, you know so add my age to the fact that as a caregiver, especially at that time these decades ago, um, caregivers were just not seen as part of the, the care team. What, what, what I reflect on now that really makes me sad is the fact that all these decades later, while we talk about caregiver engagement, and we talk about inclusion, in fact, very little has changed. Mm-hmm.
3: There's something, um, there's something, there's kind of two, obviously the, the part about the part about how, how you were treated as a caregiver. I mean, from my, it, you know, from, from my, from my perspective in the way that I, the way that I grew up in the way that I, the way that I sort of, uh, interact and investigate the world, which is, um, which is sort of always with this, um, I know, I know a lot and I also know nothing, so I'm always like I'm always looking for, like, what is the avenue to get to access more information? Like, what are who are the people? What are the resources? Where is all the information? And how can I how can I access as much as possible and aggregate it to make a, a decision? And then you know, and that that that's like I guess a maybe a complicated way of of, of like the default mode of how my brain is working all the time, but. So, so that sort of, so that sort of baffle. It baffles me in that way because I, because I walk through the way, walk through the world in that way. It seems to me like an obvious thing to do would be to talk to the people that are closest and are dealing with yeah, a person right? who has an issue. Yeah. You know, why would you not leverage that to all it, all it can, all, to in every way that you can? And on the other side of it, especially speaking from your um, experience and background in uh, economics and healthcare and a conversation uh, uh, on the back of a conversation that we had recently was about electronic medical records and um, the kind of unification mm-hmm. of records so that, you know, what, no matter what clinic that you are going to, no matter what you know department you're in or whatever, wherever you are, that connecting those dots is a much easier thing. Um, and, and I'm in, I'm interested if like from 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 that perspective of economics, do you have any insight there? As like, what are the what are the roadblocks economically that we might be facing in ter- ter- terms of implementing that, or is it just a, or is it just a, or is it just the 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 idea that a that a huge machine churns slowly and change is just like such a hard thing to implement in such a system. Mm-hmm.
2: So I think it's partly that, but I think there's also partly resistance. Um, there's territorial resistance. So you know, each organization has their own, uh, you know, their own systems they use. There's. It it just boggles my mind that in a province mm-hmm. like Ontario, with the sophisticated level of care that we have, that we do not have a table where the strategy for the overall infrastructure of our IT and medical record system it doesn't exist right mm. so you know i can't help but think i walk out my door and my phone tells me or tells my house to turn down my heat when i get outside a certain geographic boundary you know we can do these things mm. yet we can't find a way to bring a patient record together you know when my sister first got sick one of the things that was kind of earth shattering for me as an aha moment was that four different hospitals in the downtown core of Toronto could not share her, her images, her radiographs. I literally had to get in the car and drive from one to the other and pick them up. That is mm-hmm. it's stu- insane. I, we live twenty twenty one.
0: Like they they can't even email them. We, <laughs> no.
2: live, we no. live in the
1: time that is beyond when the, the movie Blade Runner took place. Like I, exactly. and, and I and I use that as an example on this fucking podcast so much. We live in the future. Dude,
3: Eddie yesterday, Eddie came over to to uh, to give me a bike a, a bike part that I need to put on his bike, and I noticed this thing on his arm, and I and he Eddie my friend Eddie our friend Eddie has diabetes. And I said, "Hey, is that little circular thing a glucose monitor?" He goes, "Yeah, it's a glucose monitor." And when his blood goes too low, his phone goes ding. Yeah, yeah. yeah you need like, to like, yeah. eat a banana. Like, and, <laughs> and, and and
1: we're at a point where we can't we can't have we can't have like four separate institutions. Just digitally share information to help another individual who needs care. Like, it's so
0: wild. Is it it
1: that the bonkers? Like,
0: it's making me think. Um, it's funny because I, in my other job, I do uh, um, business consulting work where we use data and analytics to help companies understand uh, the strategic direction of their companies better. And I have to record you saying that, Brian, because every time someone says, What does Brian do?
1: Outside of Sick Boy, I always try to describe it. And I go, I have no fucking idea. I honestly, I don't know. I don't know. That's it's a good it's
0: uh yeah, maybe the messaging <laughs> needs work. But one of the things that we, uh, we do is we use um, Harvard professor, actually, he, he passed a late Harvard professor, Clayton Christensen's method called the customer uh, job to be done approach, which is looking at um, what is the job that the customer is trying to do and trying to solve that problem first. Like that should always be your primary focus. So there's um, a famous study that uh, Clayton Christensen did with McDonald's where he was trying to help them understand how to sell more milkshakes. And so what he did is he went to the drive-thru and they started interviewing people and they were asking them, why are you buying milkshakes? And they were trying to understand what is the job that they're doing when they order that milkshake? What is the purpose behind them ordering it? And it's, it goes beyond flavor and taste and just purely wanting to buy a milkshake, there's a job that they're trying to do. So in his research, he actually found that most milkshakes are ordered early in the morning, which was really surprising. (laughs) And they found out that it was people who were driving to work who maybe already had breakfast, but wanted to have something that would sort of like occupy their time during the drive that wouldn't make a mess all over them, that would taste good. And so he realized that if you want to sell more milkshakes, the job that they're trying to do is occupy their time during their drive. So make it last, make it thicker, make the straw smaller. And they did that and they started selling more milkshakes. And the reason why I bring this up is because I feel, like, <laughs> I feel like the healthcare system is so focused on being a system that it forgets who the customer is that they're trying to serve. Right, totally. who is the patient? And I feel like, like you, you almost sort of said that in the beginning when you were talking about. You know, you said all my time that I spent in healthcare never pre- prepared me to be a caregiver, which blows blows my mind because you talked about the thousand <laughs> people. Who are part of a research uh, who are part of the caregiving team at a hospital and how you understand how they all work together to provide mm. quote unquote care, but at the same time you don't understand then how to provide actual real care for that person and i'm I'm curious how like focusing Maggie as as a caregiver looking at this customer, the patient, and what their needs are what are the needs of the patient that are not being met by the healthcare system right now?
2: So I think first and foremost, um, the primary, we're all different, right? We all have different needs, but I think the primary need that isn't being met is that question, which is what do you need and what does your family need to get through this? You know, when I think about my experience with my sister recently, um, and I think about our time in the ICU and, and, in the hospital and all the complications that happened since then. Nobody once said to me, how are you doing in all this? And what do you need in all this? So I'll give an example. You know, um, she had a particularly complicated time. And and one Friday afternoon, I arrived at the hospital and uh, they had her bundled up, ready to go home without having had a conversation with me, her caregiver about whether I was ready to have her at home, what we needed to have in place. And with with someone just telling me um, that someone would call us. Well, they didn't call us till Monday because offices don't work on the weekend. And it was a horrible weekend where we ended up in eMERGE several times. So, you know, what's needed is to listen to that voice. I mentioned it a little bit when I talked about the sense that with my dad, I didn't have a voice or I didn't feel that I had a voice. But It's it's inviting and then welcoming the voice of the caregiver and the patient. Caregivers have far more insights and can influence individual treatment. And I'm going to switch gears a little bit here too. in my answer to you, Brian, I'm going to say that Not only can caregivers influence individual treatment, caregivers have insights and wisdom that if properly used will change the trajectory of the healthcare system. And I know I sound a little bit naive in saying that, but I, but I really believe it. I believe that um, caregivers, there are more than 9 million caregivers in Canada, we're probably the largest unpaid workforce that there is in the country. And 80% of the care that's provided in the community, mostly to seniors, is by unpaid caregivers. We should, you know, given the volume of work we do, we, we the studies say that that we, caregivers, save the system between 40 and $60 billion a year.
1: Holy Because shit.
2: people are not in the hospital or wow. in long-term care. We should be at the center of informing public policy and health policy, yet we're not.
0: Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jessie Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl. Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl, yeah, work it. Good. Okay, that's enough.
3: Yeah, that's, um, that's I mean, wild. from the economic standpoint, yeah. like, <laughs> and, that, and, and it's one of those things again it's one it's one of those things that it's like from from the from the anecdotal perspective you tell a story and it hits and it it seems it seems so clear and obvious like caregivers should be consulted more there should be more communication there but then also from the macro standpoint and the economic standpoint when you say that like it 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 again like puts me into this like baffled state where I go if the number if if the number if you can quantify a number like that and 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 like i mean governments are governments like they're, all they're trying to do is make a is make a budget like basically all they do is try to make a budget and and, and all, like allocate money it's literally all they're doing all the time like how does that like how does it not get factored into mm. how does it not get factored into the way that as it as a as an identified factor of oh hey this is a way in which this is a way in which we can be more efficient more effective with our gut with the way that our healthcare system works it just um i i don't i don't really have a question in there it just like it just baffles it just baffles me
1: i mm. I, I do i do want to know how it, like I I can imagine that the work of a care or of a of a caregiver um, can be can be seen as quite exhausting um, uh, on many different levels. Um, but and and I'm and and I would love to get into why and how it is exhausting. Um, but but I also I'm I'm curious to know what your thoughts are on how you know people who are in the position of of being a healthcare or a, a caregiver right now like do you have any advice on on how those folks can kind of take the power back or or do things to to feel like they 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 have more of a say than 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 they might feel like they have and in in saying that i would would also love to just because I know that you you kind of pulled together some sort of teleconference for your, for your sister that I would I think our our listeners would love to to hear about about how that happened because that's I, I think that's pretty badass.
2: So you know I mean I, I think it's just what what we'd said originally I, you know when my dad was sick I remember thinking my voice matters and if they don't want to hear it I'm going to damn well find a way that they are going to hear it mm. and if that means. Coordinating and pulling everyone together on my own, then I will do that. And that's exactly what I did. You know, you know, with my sister, i um I got everybody on the phone and and said, "Look, we have a joint purpose here. We are not talking to each other. there is a there is no plan in place that's cohesive. I am left on my own trying to to coordinate it. Let's you know, and we all, I guess I want to back up. People's motivation is not a question here. It's, it's that we're in the midst of a system that is centered around planning for the system, not planning for the person. And that's what we need to change.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, I think I, I reflect a little bit on your question there about what people can do. And I, one of the things that I think about is that all of us have a different view and different capacities when it comes to advocacy. So, for some people, that means lobbying government. It might mean fundraising. It might mean finding a way to advocate for the person that you're caring for individually so that you can get through the experience. And that might be all it is. But you need to find that way. And you need to, Sue Robbins says it really well. She talks about the fact that there's no one right way to advocate. And the most important thing to do is to be kind and to forgive yourself as you find your own way. Um, one of the things I'd reflect on as a caregiver is that it's exhausting. It's isolating, even more so during COVID. Um, you know, Many of us have been at home and have not been out at all since COVID. But it's, it's also riddled with guilt at times. Mm. Guilt because we, don't, we sometimes think we don't do enough. Guilt because we are exhausted and sometimes don't want to be doing what we're doing. And guilt, um, someone said to me this morning, I I had put out a question about uh, what people wanted me to discuss here today. And and one person got back to me and said, the guilt that she feels when when she recognizes she actually doesn't want to be a caregiver, but she doesn't feel like she has a choice. Mm. So, you know, my advice to people is to, at a minimum, Find the way that you can care for yourself and the person that you're responsible for in a way that allows you to get through the experience and come out the other end.
3: Mm-hmm. I think as, a, go ahead,
0: Brian. as someone who's hasn't been a caregiver before, um, <clears throat> when I hear you talk about the experiences that you've been through and I, and I hear, um, past stories of people that we've had on the podcast to talk about caregiving, I, I imagine that, and that, and that question that, that, that person reached out to you and asked you to talk about that guilt, I imagine that um, being a caregiver can, can be quite burdensome at times. And I'm curious about what types of support are out there for caregivers in terms of like their own mental health and, and how, how you sort of um, deal with your own or manage your own mental well-being you know, taking on the role of caring for uh, your loved ones?
2: So it's a really good question, Brian. Um, So, you know, I told you the story of my sister's illness and I told you about my dad. My family doesn't have a single kind of Kleenex-worthy crisis event. But what I would call kind of a lifetime of small events that have piled up one on top of the other, exposing us, exposing our, our weaknesses, making us feel vulnerable, eroding our trust in the system, and making me as a caregiver feel like a turtle without a shell at times. Um, and I, you know, I, I wanted to say, when you speak to people who are caregivers, it's really important to recognize that each retelling of our story for me, anyway, and I, I don't think I'm unusual, it literally scalds my heart anew. But I tell it in the hope that it will help to show that the time for change is now. It's time that we move us from a fragmented system to one that's inspired by the needs of patients and families, caregivers, and communities. being care, being a caregiver can be lonely and exhausting. For me, personally, I have found tremendous support, uh, not in the system, but in the people that I uh, kind of share this advocacy with. So, people in a community of caregivers provide me with the most support. You know, I think of my friend Julie Drury, who I um, kind of think of as my spirit sister at times. Mm-hmm. She refers to our efforts and advocacy as being gently fierce. And that's an approach that works with me. Um, and it allows me to get through it and it allows these, this community of caregivers, um, provide me with the support anyway, that, that has certainly helped me not only get through our personal experience, but keep going in terms of advocating for change in the system. Mm.
3: I think there's a, uh, there's, this is something that uh, popped into my mind, um, w- when you were uh, when you were speaking last and then to follow on your question, Bri was, um, you know, something in, uh, Maggie, so all three of us are, uh, are yoga teachers or have been teaching yoga at some point, And, um, and something that, something that was, a that came up a lot in terms of the sort of the uh, speaking, like philosophically, like how we, how we feel on a day-to-day basis and how we kind of walk through the world and experience our community and the people in our lives and everything is, is that, you know, we can, it's, it's very easy to, it's very easy to feel uh, incredibly burdened by the busyness of our lives. You know, whether it's your, your family, your job, uh, you a person that you're taking care of uh, that there are that the guilt that you mentioned it's it can be it can become very easy to feel guilty the second that you start doing something for you um and you know so it i i ride my bike a lot and sometimes when i can recognize hey it's a, it's a wednesday and i've got 2 hours and you know i don't have anything pressing that needs to be done now so i'm going to go for a bike ride and there's always always That those moments where I go, should I be doing this? Like, or should I, like, you always question yourself. I I mean, it, I always get on my bike, (laughs) but, but I always have that moment of, of questioning of like that, that like little flicker of guilt that I'm, you know, this is time that I'm not spending doing this thing or that thing or coming or finding something that I could be doing. And, but then also on the flip side of that, and going back to the piece I I started with in the yoga on yoga was that we'd always say that yoga was this was the most um uh selfishly selfless thing that you could do because it was taking time for yourself to be with your thoughts to calm your mind to make your body feel better to make your mind feel better so then you could then exit out back into the world and and show up better for all mm-hmm. the people in your in your life and so i'm wondering like speaking to Speaking to uh, in the context of caregivers, the importance of of making sure, you know, whether it's, you know, whether it's five minutes or an hour or whatever of taking that time guilt free to focus on yourself and to and to take time for you so that you can be there for the people that you have to take care of better
2: so i you know I think the whole issue of resilience and and self care is one that um, caregivers struggle with, so you know most caregivers work full time or or work um, I think the <laughs> estimate is that thirty five percent of the workforce are caregivers so so we work and then we have these responsibilities and you know the other thing i'd say is that we think of caregiving quite often as providing emotional support or being there for the person. As our system becomes more fiscally constrained, um, you know, and, and smaller and smaller, smaller envelopes for healthcare, the role of caregiver has become much more complex and much more demanding. So most of us are looking after lines and catheters and meds and IVs and, and complex medical um, technologies not just sitting by someone's bed and and making them feel better. So, you know, so those those notions of self-care, I think that's partly where some of the guilt comes in, where we recognize that in order to be whole and in order to provide um, good care and be healthy, we need to take time. But sometimes it just isn't there. um, Mm. And we just don't have it. And then sometimes the you know the frustration. What we need is we need you to hear our stories. We need people in the system to hear them and to learn from them, um, and not to see them as an emotion-provoking tick box of engagement, but to see them as a way to start a plan of action. Um, you know, I I've, some of the things that when I reflect on what I've learned being a. a character the funny thing is that most of the things I've learned are not rocket science and and aren't sophisticated. You know, we have this, we have this belief that, that, that the approaches to meaningful transformation on healthcare need to be highly sophisticated, overly expensive, and really complicated. That's not true. You know, there's, there's no, um, there's nothing more important in our journey than kindness, um, and being treated kindly and with compassion. It goes an awful long way, you know. Even when things are tough, um, I tell the story that that uh, that really touched me. You know, my sister is a particularly private person, and and was just in the hallway in, in a hospital after her surgery at one point, or before her surgery, sorry. Um, And I noticed this cleaning woman walking around and kind of watching us. And I was sitting by my sister's side, you know, on the stretcher. And this woman kept watching us. And then she came up to us and and, uh, just quietly didn't say anything and went over to the laundry cart and took a pillowcase out and took a sheet out and and came over. And she draped them over the catheters that were on my sister's stretcher going from her bladder to the bags and, and that were embarrassing her tremendously but she had noticed that and without any ceremony or any any kind of words she draped these these blankets and sheets over it and then she just touched my shoulder as she left and she just whispered in my ear that she was sorry that this was happening to us and she just gave my shoulder a little rub and then she left just as discreetly as she'd arrived and what she taught me in that moment is that we're all in the same team. They want the same thing, and that a little bit of kindness and compassion can go a tremendous length in in doing that. Hmm. Maggie, what what are
1: some of the things that you do personally yourself um, to to yeah it it's it's funny like as we as we've been having this conversation and and as i'm like looking at the you know like the pre interview notes i'm just i'm just i'm in awe at the amount that you have that within your life the amount that you've had been been thrown into this role as caregiver you know it's like at like um I don't believe in uh, fate or destiny or anything, but if I did, you know, I'd read this and go, "Oh, I guess, I guess her 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 destiny was to be a caregiver because <laughs> it's all it is it it is a very large part of yeah. your of your um you know your origin story." <clears throat> um, having said that, uh, personally, what are some of the things that you have found? That have helped you deal with the inevitabilities of, of burnout as a caregiver.
2: So, I I think that um, for me, um, advocacy is a part of that. So, you know, keeping that promise to myself that my voice would never be quieted again, I've also realized the importance of community. Um, so I spoke a little bit about having a community of support that I depend on, many of whom I have not met. So you know, these are folks mm. either you know we talk on the phone or through Twitter or whatever it might be. But a community that I know is behind me. Um, I write, you know, which in the dead of night I I write a lot, um, and I find that very therapeutic. I um, I swim. You know, suppose so I like I like being in nature. You're gonna laugh at this. This is ridiculous. I, I find weeding highly therapeutic. <laughs> so I you know, I spend time in the garden weeding. But I you know
1: Oh, I thought that was like a like a colloquial term for like just getting no. baked. <laughs> 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 is that what, what, what the kids are, are calling you. it now? Weeding? <laughs>
3: <laughs> monotonous monotonous tasks are, are incredibly yeah. Like I, I very much, uh, I very much hear you on that. Like you know, get you know, give me something that I can. When your brain shuts off, but your body just start, just keeps doing the thing. Yeah, like... for Taylor, it's filing taxes.
2: <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I wouldn't taxes. say
2: that, <laughs> but you know, and I think also like knowing that I can um, play some small part in making things better. You know, part of the problem with caregivers is that we're. A we're we're busy. Many do not identify as caregivers, and there are starting to be some recognition of some support, uh, as supports that are needed. So, you know, through caregiver organization and some others, but fundamentally, people feel isolated and alone. So we have to bring the supports to them. Um, you know, and, and I I think my message is when when caregivers tell their story, they do it with pain and it hurts, but they do it so that people understand that those stories are not simply window dressing. Mm. Um, We wanna be full participants in equal in all respects to other partners at the table, whether that's in developing a treatment plan for an individual, or in my case, I wanna be part of developing a system of care that puts people back at the center. And I think to do otherwise, to say we're transforming healthcare, but to do otherwise and not include caregivers brings poverty to what we can achieve together.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Maggie, uh, it, it,
0: before, before, uh, before we moved to wrap, I, I want to ask one sort of more pointed question uh, about the changes that, that we need to make in the healthcare system. And I, I I'm curious because we've talked um, somewhat vaguely about the system itself but I'm curious, who in the system has the influence to, to actually affect these changes?
2: So, you know, my view is that um, it's the polit- it's the political sphere where recognition of the role of caregivers. I mean, when you think back to what we talked about originally, forty to sixty billion dollars a year in Canada. Yeah, yeah, that would be spent on the system is saved because of. Care. That is massive. Mm. So then to leave those caregivers afloat without support is not just morally wrong. It's stupid, Mm. (laughs) you know, because if we can't care for the people that that we are responsible for, they will end up in the system and in a system that is not equipped to care for them and Mm. is fiscally constrained. Mm. So it's short-sighted not to have caregivers at policy tables and informing them and it's mm. short-sighted to have four-year political cycles that don't recognize and sub- find ways to support caregivers in a different way.
0: Mm. It's interesting because when you when you put it that way, I think, uh, you know, I, I've been thinking this whole time that I don't really have a direct relationship with, uh, with how um, caregivers are affected. The ability for somebody to be a caregiver is affected by the way that the system is set up. But I think now of... Uh, my uncle who passed away in February, who was, um, very much a part of the, the healthcare system in the sense that he suffered from addiction his entire life. Um, he lived on the streets for a period of time. Um, he was in and out of public housing and, and sometimes because of the way that the system was set up was unable to stay in, in, in public housing. And, um, you know, my mom would have been an amazing caregiver for him. She just didn't have the capacity to do it. And I, when I think about it now, it kind of breaks my heart because, like, I now understand, I think a lot of the guilt that she feels around that because she would have been an amazing caregiver for him and his quality of life mm. would have been significantly mm. better had she been able to provide that mm. care for him. And fucking sex. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. You know, that, Brian, that's a, like, it's a, it's such a sad story, but it's, it's one that I hear often, right? It's, it's, you know, what could have been and what should have been,
0: mm.
2: um, you know? And I, I think when I think about it, I want to remind us, you know, like there's no healthcare yogi that dispenses wisdom mm-hmm. to people on the mountaintop, you know? And <laughs> some of the answers are right in front of our noses. Mm. They're in the valleys where we live. They're in the valleys where we care, they're where we work. There, and they're in the lived experiences of families and patients and caregivers and clinicians. So we need to be able to bring those together.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Maggie, your uh, your message is uh, is so important. And and again, like having the opportunity to have heard your story uh, through through one evening uh, in a conversation on Clubhouse just really highlighted how, how important it was to have you come on here and share your experiences with us. We really, really appreciate you taking the time out of your day today to, to uh, speak to us, not only us, but also to our listeners. And uh, I just want to say thank you. Thank you so much for, for all that you do you. And, and all that you will continue to do.
2: Can I also thank you? I want to thank you three for inviting the conversation. It's so important to have it. And I want to take a moment to thank those uh, who speak up, even when it feels as if no one's listening. So I want to thank caregivers out there who are using their voice for the part that they're playing in demanding change, in organizing, and in leading this transformation in healthcare. You make a difference every single day.
1: Thank you so much, Maggie. Thanks, Thanks, really, it means a lot. Yeah,
2: thank you. This was great. It was really fun.
3: (laughs) That is it for today. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. If you like what you heard, make sure that you
0: share our podcast with your friends. We love those extra ears. Sick Boy Podcast is
1: a Snack Labs production. It is produced by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Taylor McGilvery, Brian Stever, and Lauren Sankey. Sound design is coming to you from Donovan the Meerkat Morgan. The music of the show is from our friend Rich O'Coin, and Sick Boy Podcast is managed by Jeffrey Lonis. That is it for today. I'm Brian. I'm Taylor. And I'm Jeremy, and this is Sick Boy